Hello and welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcast. My name is Ralph Cree and this is brought to you in association with bodyheartmindspirit.co.uk. In this episode, I had the great pleasure of speaking to Bernardo Kastrup, who is a physicist um, and a philosopher. Um, and he has uh, he's got a great deal of energy for uh, putting out content uh, about what he calls analytic idealism, uh, which is uh, a consciousness-only view, and it equates very uh, snugly with the non-dual tantric philosophy, um, Zogchen, Tibetan Buddhism, um, th those kind of uh, Eastern teachings. And he's got to this conclusion via uh, the study of physics. Um, he uh, is a physicist who worked at CERN at the Large Hadron Collider and places like that. The, uh, he has a PhD in computer science uh, and also a um, a, a PhD in philosophy. Uh, so he's, he's also come at it from a Western philosophical tradition, um, trajectory, um, which I think is fantastic because a lot of the stuff I've been into is, you know, kind of Eastern philosophy and to bring in these uh, Western and modern scientific experimental um, angles to mesh um, with those Eastern traditions has been really helpful for me. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll just uh, say no more and uh, enjoy the conversation. So Bernardo Castro, welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice podcast. It's a pleasure uh, to be here. Great, wonderful. It's um, it, this is I've been looking forward to this for a really long time. Uh, I think I listened to an episode you did on Rebel Wisdom podcast in January or something like that. I was quite a long time ago, and I was like, I've got to speak to this guy. Uh, and I've been exploring um, your stuff on YouTube and all podcasts you've done, and um, I think it's it's fantastic work you're doing. Um, and Thank I, you, I think. But yeah, and the the thing what I checked out after your uh, listen to to that initial podcast interview was your really really good course on YouTube. Uh, it's like a sort of six part series um, on the subject we're going to explore, um, and I, I think that that for me that was a great place to start, uh, and then branch out into more of your interviews and debates and things you have with other people. Um, just saying that for other. So that's the Essential Foundation course, right? That, that's it, Essential Foundation course on YouTube. Um, and uh, just for those listening, that was kind of my route into your work. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of it. You, you, you've got a, a, a great work work ethic in this uh, in this field. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not so, a free choice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just to you know, keep keeping in mind the time we've got. I've, there's, there's, I've written down so many questions for you. Um, I hope we can we can get them all in. So if we could just start with a with a, a very short bio of you know who who you are, your, your training, those kind of things, um, and then we can get on into the, the meat of the subject, please, if that's okay. Sure. I was originally trained as a computer scientist, a computer engineer. I have my first PhD 
in that uh, field, um, reconfigurable computing mainly. Um, I also have a PhD in philosophy, philosophy of mind, uh, ontology, and my work is mostly about the nature of reality. What is the world out there? What are we and what's the relationship between the two of them? Excellent. And you, I think you, you worked at CERN, that's something, you know, people, when they think of physics, they, they often think of the Large Hadron Collider and, and, and all of that stuff. And, and I believe you had a part in building some of the, the, um, the AI or some of the, the, the hardware there. Is that true? Yes, I, I, well, we tried AI as well, but ultimately we've chosen for a classical algorithm back in the 90s. AI was not as advanced as today. We didn't have the hardware. But uh, yeah, working at CERN was my very first job. I was 22. When I started there, I worked in the data acquisition system of the Atlas experiment, which is one of the two big, there are more, but there are two big experiments in the Large Hadron Collider, Atlas and CMS. So I worked on the data acquisition system of the Atlas uh, experiment. Great. And that, I mean, I, um, you know, for those listening, uh, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, you know, Bernardo's had a long and illustrious career in the world of, of physics and computer engineering and all that stuff. And, and that, that's kind of important because this is, you know, this, this podcast is, is about spiritual practices. Um, but it, it's, it's the kind of orientation I have is, is integrating um, Eastern and Western and scientific models and, and, and practical models from yoga traditions and those kind of things all together. Um, and what what really uh, it, it piqued my interest when I came across your work is that um, you're the you, what you might call the consciousness only view, um, which is which is a very common view in a lot of the Eastern traditions, and it's something I've um, been acquainted with for decades. But I, I was always, you know, searching for. I, I like to kind of triangulate truth, you know, from lots of different coordinates and i was you know being raised in in this kind of materialist um secular western culture but you know to try and find something in this western tradition um which which kind of linked up with these eastern eastern ideas was was very important for me um and so you you one of the things i, I love about what you're bringing to this is the the, the kind of hardcore physics side of it and then this western philosophical tradition um and it's there's it's a bit like when uh, i started to learn about the the mystical aspects of christianity that were lining up with some of the eastern uh, traditions i'd been studying it, that kind of fell into place for me and what i've so much appreciate about your work is is pointing out in western philosophy and um contemporary physics how that lines up with some of these views um from these kind of eastern traditions um so perhaps if, if we could just start with just a, a very brief overview of your view uh of the nature of reality you know which i've kind of labeled as the consciousness only view uh you may want to tweak that or whatever um so if it, yeah if you can just summarize it for those people listening please that'd be really great Sure. I think there is only consciousness in the phenomenal sense. So not necessarily higher level mental functions. I think those are exclusive to evolved animals on planet Earth. But uh, raw awareness 
pure consciousness, I think, is the stuff of all reality, but not my pure consciousness alone, not your pure consciousness alone. That would be solipsism, and I'm not a solipsist at all. I think there is a world out there, objective from our perspective, a world which presents itself to us in the form that we call matter. Matter is just what the dials show in the dashboard of our sensors. In other words, the screen of perception. Uh, but the world as it is in itself, uh, I think, is mental in nature. Uh, it is made of uh, transpersonal conscious processes, transpersonal mental processes, which present themselves to us upon observation as what we call matter, in the same way that your inner sadness presents itself to yourself on the mirror in the form of material tears and material contorted facial muscles. So I'm not a solipsist. I think there is an objective world out there that we cannot change merely by fantasizing it to be different or by wishing it to be different or by doing affirmations and endless visualizations. I don't think the world out there cares whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not, whether we want it to be different or not, what, what our fantasies are. It is objective from our point of view, but it is subjective from its own point of view. In the same way that your thoughts are objective from my point of view, I cannot influence them directly, uh, but they are subjective from your own first-person perspective. Okay. So because we're using language and language is inherently dualistic, we're sort of talking about consciousness and, and objects of perception and those kind of things. And I think what what you know it's quite common to talk about a perceiver perceiving things. And I think what you're saying is that there's no perceiver perceiving things, that the all phenomena um, rather than see they that they are consciousness rather than being. There's, there's different ways of saying this. You know, you could say things are made of consciousness, or you can say everything is consciousness. And it's slightly different to what is a, is a common uh, view called panpsychism, where you have objects of matter that have their own consciousness. So, you can, uh, do you know what I mean about the sort of those three different, slightly different uh, views of it? Yeah. Um, just for people listening. Um, there's quite a lot of different views there, which they're all different. And, and the language we use really changes um, the actual view we're talking about and one's experience of life and reality. Okay, I think the world out there, the objective universe is both consciousness and it is conscious because the fundamental characteristic of consciousness is to be conscious. So we are saying the same thing if we say that it is consciousness or that it is conscious. Um, panpsychism is a different approach, namely constitutive panpsychism will say that the world, out, the world out there has consciousness as one of its features, as one of its properties, but it is not only the property of being conscious. It also has mass, charge, spin, momentum and all the other physical properties. So panpsychism acknowledges that there are things, there are properties that are outside and independent of consciousness, a different kind of stuff. Uh, and then it adds consciousness as one of those fundamental properties. Now, what I say is that 
there is nothing that is outside or independent of consciousness. What we call mass, charge, momentum, spin. These, these, these properties are how mental processes or conscious processes present themselves to observation on the screen of perception, which is an encoded apprehension of the world out there. And Kant already talked about the difference between phenomena and noumena. The noumena is the world as it is in itself. Phenomena is how that world presents itself to observation in the same way that combustion presents itself as flames most of the times, but not others. Um, and, but flames are not combustion. You can have combustion without flames. Uh, uh, certain types of fuel burn without flames. Uh, you are combusting food all the time inside your cells when you burn ATP, but there are no flames. So in exactly the same way, I think the, the noumena, the world as it is in itself, is consciousness. Therefore, it is conscious. Uh, and materiality is not extra properties that go with it. Material, materiality, materiality is the flames. It's the way conscious processes present themselves to observation. In other words, it's what conscious processes look like from a perspective, but materiality does not have standalone existence. It's just the appearance, the image, what something looks like. Okay. So, and would, just for people listening, just quickly say solipsism would be to believe that all that exists is your own, your own consciousness and all the people you experience and organisms you experience a little bit like non-playable characters in video games or something. They don't really exist. And, and that's not what we're saying, because that's quite a common thing to try and conflate these two. So then people would ask, well, then what is this mind, what you call mind at large? Um, if it's not, well, I've just the first thing to say, I mean, it, solipsism is actually quite hard to disprove. It, there's a kind of gut feeling that it's wrong. But at the end of the day, you know, you may, when you die, you may take off some VR helmet and, you know, the whole thing's been, you've been in a game that's been your own game. You know, it's, we wouldn't necessarily know. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's hard to actually disprove solipsism, even though it, it, the kind of gut feeling is that it's wrong. Would you agree with that? Yes, but I, I personally don't operate on, on gut feeling. I think there is a very reasonable argument against solipsism. As, when it comes to proving proofs, uh, an affirmative proof is almost always impossible, even in most of science. We can disprove things. Uh, I, um, regarding solipsism, uh, the point is not whether we can prove or disprove it for the same reason that we don't believe or disbelieve the flying spaghetti monster because we can disprove it. We cannot disprove the flying spaghetti monster. Maybe there is an invisible flying spaghetti monster making the planets go around their orbits with his noodly invisible appendages. The question is not what can be disproven. The question is what do we have reasons to believe? And in the case of solipsism, I think there are very good reasons to not believe it. Uh, reasons based on parsimony mainly. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you you describe um, what you call the dashboard of dials, and it, I, I find this a really great metaphor. Um, and if please please could you just describe that? Yeah. We <clears throat> we are naive realists by and large as a culture. Um, we believe that the forms and shapes that appear on the screen of perception, in other words, the stuff we see, 
the contours of the objects and entities we see, we believe that they really exist out there in the world, that the world is made of entities that have the spatial temporal boundaries that appear on the screen of perception, the forms, shapes, and contours that appear on the screen of perception. Now, we know that whatever the truth is, this isn't part of it. Um, it, it, it is uh, impossible. It would be impossible for a living being to perceive the world as it really is. And there are at least two converging lines of argument for it. One is that if our perception, uh, perception states, internal perception states would mirror the states of the world out there, there would be no upper bounds to the diversity of our inner states. And therefore, we could not maintain our structural integrity. To put it very bluntly, we would dissolve into hot soup. Our internal entropy uh, would just go out of bounds. Another reason is that uh, evolution would have never favored uh, 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 an animal perceiving the world as it really is. For the same reason that it's not convenient for you to see a computer file as it really is. In other words, millions of open or closed microscopic switches, you cannot operate with it if you see a computer file, if you saw a computer file as it really is. What you need is a representation of it, like a little rectangle on your computer desktop, which doesn't look at all like the real file, but it helps you work with it in exactly the same way evolution would have uh, a favored uh, a sort of a, a desktop computer metaphor. We don't see the world as it really is. We see it in whatever way it helps us survive in it. So the world as it really is, is not made of the entities, the forms, shapes, and contours, uh, and silhouettes that we see on perception. Um, one way to visualize that is what we alluded to, the, dash the dashboard metaphor. Um, imagine that you are an airplane pilot and you do not have a transparent uh, windshield. You do not have a transparent window to see the world as it really is. All you have is a dashboard of instruments. Can you fly safely? Yes, you can. We call it flying by instruments. And if the weather is bad, pilots are trained to not look outside, but to look at the instruments because that's much safer to fly that way. This is us. Evolution evolved the dashboard of dials, not a transparent window to see the world as it really is. It's too dangerous, not conducive to survival. So the forms that we see on the screen of perception are the dials on the dashboard. What we call the physical world is the dashboard. It's not the actual world. It's a representation thereof that is convenient or conducive to our survival uh, on this planet as, as anti-entropic uh, entities. And this is very important to realize, because if you realize that, a whole number of things that we consider very mysterious in science are not mysterious at all anymore. For instance, in foundations of physics, we know that physical entities cannot have standalone existence. Every time we try to carry out an experiment to show that physical properties really exist prior to being measured, and that measurement simply reveals what physical properties already were, every time we do this experiment, it turns out that no, physical properties did not exist prior to measurement. They are the result of measurement. And people get all discombobulated that, well, does that mean that there is no objective world? That the objective world is created only when we measure it? No, that's not what it means. Obviously, there is an objective world. There is something that is measured. But that something isn't physical. In the same way that the sky outside is not the dashboard of instruments of our pilot, 
the world out there is not physicality. Physicality is the dashboard. The dials on a dashboard show nothing unless the airplane's sensors make a measurement of the world outside. The world outside is the thing that is measured. The result of measurement is what the dials on the dashboard display. There is no confusion about that. Why is there confusion about uh, the measurement problem in physics? There shouldn't be. You have to abandon the understanding or the, the narrative, the story, the account, that the world outside is physical. It isn't physicality, just like the dashboard, is what appears if you perform a measurement on it. Physicality is an appearance, and appearances only exist if, if there is an observation. Otherwise, it, nothing appears. Stuff simply remains whatever it is. The world as it is in itself is not physical. It's most likely mental, because that's the only other thing we know for sure to exist. Actually, it's the only thing we know for sure to exist. Physicality is the result of measurement in the same way that the indications on the dials is the result of measuring the, 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 the sky outside. So, so some people, you know, who are into psychedelics, meditation, different sort of transformative practices like that might, you know, I'm thinking of Aldous Huxley and the, the doors of perception talking about this kind of filtering that happens of um, reality. Um, that, so so we, we get this kind of little trickle that comes through the filter and people might lament that kind of limitation and want to kind of skip the filter and be able to you know take it all in um and uh, one of the things that i've heard you talk about is that this kind of limitation of this dashboard um this sort of user interface um that that's not that's not a judgment it's uh, it's actually you know great benefit to have that limitation because um you know if anybody's smoke dmt or those kind of things you you wouldn't really want to be in that state where if you're in that state all the time you would not survive very long um and but you know what would you say i mean do, do you know what i mean that there's this kind of yearning in a lot of people that you know i, I, I sense it in you you're someone who wants to get to the foundation of things like you're, you're very very driven to understand what this is all about you know this experience of living and you know you're that lots of people share that drive so in a way that makes people feel like they're on the other side of this user interface and bear in mind we're using language here which is dualistic so the user interface is not separate from the user and that which is interfacing with but so you know you're saying that there's something that lies beyond this dashboard of dials this user interface which we cannot access because to access it would destroy us uh, so to speak would turn us into that entropic soup uh, it's a little bit like in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna shows Arjuna his full form and he's like, whoa, turn it off. You know, um, you know that's a bit of a word salad I've given you there. But do, do you get what I'm trying to get to this? You know, what, what yep. would you say about accessing what lies beyond? It's not what evolution would have done for not because of value judgment uh, nature doesn't pass value judgments uh, but the system and the regularities of the system are such that uh, no living being would evolve to see the world as it really is uh, that that's not what would have happened not because it's good or bad uh, but because <laughs> natural selection 
would not select for it. it there, there is no value judgment here. Uh, it, 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 the regularities of the system are such that this is how it would have evolved. To see the world as it really is, is not conducive to survival. So the living beings that did are not around. The ones yeah. that are around are the ones who didn't see the yeah. world as it really is, but saw the world in a way that would help them survive and reproduce and compete successfully in an ecosystem with limited resources. It, 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 it's a very, how to say it, there is no value judgment here. It's just the way things are. I mean, whether you like it or not, uh, it is just the way things would have evolved and worked. Well, would you would you say there are some states of consciousness that people can get into, which kind of immerse them in that what you, is beyond the dashboard of dials, um, and Partly. then you come back from it. I'm thinking of things I, I, like I don't think that's impossible. Five meo DMT ketamine, you know those, those very kind of out there experiences. The first thing to keep in mind is that we are always on drugs. Um, uh, we are always on a drug called serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter whose molecular structure looks a lot like the psychedelics you just referred to. Um, so our experience is mediated by drugs. In other words, uh, drugs of the neurotransmitter sort um, are what experiencing the world as a living being looks like. Our experiences, when observed from the outside, look like a metabolizing brain in which neurotransmitters are mediating neuronal firings. Um, a psychedelic is a different kind of neurotransmitter, a different kind of drug. So it stands to reason that if you put that in your system, um, that would mean that uh, the appearance of your experiences is changing slightly from serotonin to, I don't know, psilocin, dimethyltryptamine, whatever. Um, so your experiences will change too, because if what they look like change, it stands to reason that the experiences themselves change. Um, and it is conceivable that uh, through these other neurotransmitter-like substances, um, you can apprehend your own reality and the reality of the world from a different point of view, a different perspective, which will feel very discombobulating because it's different from what you've been used to since you were born. But if you were born regarding the world from that perspective, it would be your normal. And this right now would be completely discombobulating. Um, so yeah, it stands to reason that you can apprehend different aspects of reality uh, under psychedelic drugs, uh, aspects that are not ordinarily amenable to observation if you're running serotonin as opposed to psilocin or dimethyltryptamine. Yeah, I think one probably, no matter what state of experience you're having uh, due to whatever pharmacological intervention. Um, there is also this fact that consciousness can never be made fully into an object to itself. So there's, there's I, I kind of call consciousness a forever mystery. And if you, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, you, you could, um, you know, as the sort of pure subject of experience, consciousness being that, um, the the place from which one from which one perceives phenomenon, um, that sort of vantage point of looking from will never be made into an object fully, because it, you can you can kind of 
dislodge parts of your psyche and make them into an object. Let's say you, um, you know, you had some kind of psychological trait where you th thought you were, were never good enough or something because you're, you had a harsh father who criticized you a lot or something like that. And that became your modus operandi in life. You could, through psychological work, bring that into, uh, make that an object of your consciousness and therefore become free of it in the sense that it's not the frame through which you're looking at. But there is a, a kind of an aspect of consciousness, which I think you've called um, pure subjectivity. subjectivity, core subjectivity, pure subjectivity. They call that the self in um, a lot of the Hindu traditions, self with a capital S, um, Rigpa in Tibetan Buddhism. So it's that which, due to its very nature, and when I say it, it's not an it, it's an I, that I can never be made into an object. So there is, there's a kind of fathomless aspect to consciousness. So I think even though, let's say, um, you know, I've, I've had a lot of experiences on psychedelics where I've come away from it thinking, wow, I just experienced everything, the totality of everything. But I think there's, one always should keep in mind that this is, this is unfathomably deep. Um, and we are, on, yeah, does that make, am I talking any sense? <laughs> Course objectivity, almost by definition, can never objectify itself. Because course objectivity is the place where you stand when you're objectifying everything else. Uh, to objectify course objectivity is to annihilate course objectivity. And if you could do that, you would not know because you wouldn't be there to mm. see what the result of that is. So it, it's a hopeless attempt. Yeah. So w when you were talking earlier about um, measurement and um, consciousness being in it, just it. it with this uh, inherently part of, of every experience that a sentient being has, you know, whether that's a scientific experiment or, or whatever, that there's this kind of inescapable bind of subjectivity. So if I, if I was, a, if, if there was a, a scientist went out uh, or, or no, used some um, piece of equipment, re, you know, remote piece of equipment on, let's say Mars, Mars Rover, um, collects some data, you know, that that's in the kind of, you think we might think of that as a kind of a purely material occurrence a long way away from where we are but ultimately that piece of data will end up in the subjectivity of a scientist be interpreted shared with other scientists delivered to the general public into their consciousness so 100 percent objectivity is a completely theoretical thing for a human being or any sentient creature does that line up with with what you're saying I think from the point of view of an individual subject, there are such things as objective natural processes in the sense that there are natural processes that we have no control over, no direct control over. I cannot stop a star from going supernova just by wishing that the star didn't do that. Um, but what you might ask is, are there any objective processes that are objective from their own point of view, objective in and of themselves? That I would say doesn't exist. Uh, that, that there I would agree with you. That's that's a pure theoretical abstraction, because things can only be said to exist in so far as it's experienced somewhere by something, even if it's not by you. Uh, 
So I think the inanimate universe, for instance, is objective from our point of view, but it is essentially subjective from its own point of view. I don't think there is a purely objective inanimate universe in the sense that it itself has no inner subjectivity. I think that's a theoretical abstraction that doesn't solve any problem, doesn't provide any explanatory power. And on the contrary, it leads to insoluble so-called problems like the hard problem of consciousness, uh, which is not a problem at all to be solved. It, it's just an internal contradiction of a mistaken theoretical abstraction that leads to contradictions as, as its implications. Um, but keep in mind that in saying this, I'm not denying relative objectivity. I'm not denying that the, the cup of ayahuasca that I'm about to drink is objective from my point of view until I drink it. In other words, it exists out there. It's not part of my mental processes. But I do think that cup of ayahuasca is an appearance on our dashboard of dials that we call perception of what is, in essence, a transpersonal mental process. There is something it is like to be the inanimate universe as a whole, and the cup of ayahuasca is part of it. Uh, in the same way that say, one neuron is part of what your conscious inner life looks like. <laughs> the cup of ayahuasca is part uh, of the image of the inner life of the inanimate universe as a whole. Uh, so it is objective from that perspective. The moment I drink it, I pull that transpersonal mental process into my own dissociative boundaries, into my own private conscious inner life. And the result of that is that my conscious inner life changes. Of course it does. A thought changes an emotion, an emotion changes a thought. If you bring a mental process that is out there in the objective world into your own subjective world, the subjectivity whose image is that cup of ayahuasca will become part of your subjectivity. And you will now experience that cup of ayahuasca from a first person perspective, not any longer from a third person perspective. So that's what we have to keep in mind. Uh, to deny relative objectivity is just silly. Of course, there is stuff that we cannot just think out of existence. There is stuff that does whatever it does, regardless of whether we know it, like it, care about it or not, believe it or not. Um, it's silly to deny that. But the, the mistaken step is then to take the next step and, and to say that relative objectivity is in fact absolute objectivity. That I think is an unhelpful uh, step of abstraction because it doesn't, again, it doesn't solve any prob problem. It doesn't explain anything. It just leads to internal contradictions. So there's, if we're talking about a cup in front of you, um, it, uh, I'm thinking about the sort of law of attraction, manifestation, the secret, that kind of world is thinking of, say, your, your individual consciousness, your, your ego, personality, what some people call the contents of your consciousness, are able to um, manipulate phenomena and um because of the kind of linkage but what you're talking about it seems to me is a, is a kind of layer below that which uh, in meditation traditions you know we're, we're talking about this universal mind or it's it's the it's the, the type of the subjectivity that you and i share 100 there's there's no difference between 
the subjective this kind of um in there's a zen master called absolute subjectivity it's that kind of um empty transparent consciousness that every sentient being shares um that at that level it is entirely impersonal um and those kind of those kind of wishes of like oh i'd like to just uh manifest a thousand pounds for, for me right now or you know a new car it, that's completely on a different level of what you're you seem to be talking about here um which might be a bit disappointing for some people um to hear but the the, the kind of the good news about this deeper layer of subjectivity um which you've got a great name for it i think mind at large is, is a very good word for it uh, they call it big mind in zen it's the kind of you can say it's it's the first person perspective of the cosmos um and um that the good news of that is that that in the it, hindu it, it, hindu traditions they they have this word satchitananda there is like wonderful compound sanskrit terms um satchitananda means uh sat is like kind of being shit is mind or consciousness and ananda is bliss there's probably very bad translations for any sanskritists out there but apologies um that the actual texture of that first person singular first person experience of consciousness is inherently blissful um and pleasurable so it's not as if there aren't any goodies at that level if you know what i mean um because some people always want to know what, what's what's in it for them. So this this view that you're talking about, this kind of consciousness only thing, and that this cup in front of you is an excitation of consciousness. Um, in 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 this kind of deeper level that we're talking about, what's what what are the kind of benefits to an, an your average person to take on this this view that you're talking about? Well, let me start with a disclaimer. Uh, I think if you are in it because you, wa you want to know what there is in it for you, then I think you're on the wrong path and sh shouldn't be listening to me. It, it is um, rather a materialistic, view, you know, thing of like, but there's, there's, there's the a bit of carrot. We were, I want to I wanna give some people some carrots here. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> I, I think what you're saying is really important. I personally want to know what is true. And if the truth turns out to be horrible, then okay, then so be it. At least I know and I get closure. It's a well-known psychological phenomenon called fluid compensation. If the news is bad, but you find closure, okay, that's a sort of a, a compensation for it. That's my attitude. I want to know what's true. I want to know what's going wrong and I, what's going on. And I think uh, the narratives of our culture are completely wrong. Uh, and not only wrong, they are obviously wrong. And the plausibility they have was manufactured by culture. If you hear enough people saying the same thing for long enough, you think it's plausible, even if it is complete absurdity. And materialism is total bullshit. It's complete nonsense. It doesn't take a genius to see that it is. You just need to think carefully about it for a couple of days, honestly. And you realize that it, it brings you to a blind alley and you can go no further. Um, so that's the disclaimer. Having said that, 
what is in it for you. Um, there, there is bad news and there is good news. The bad news is the following. Materialism had the amazing psychological advantage and that came in the mid 19th century, mid to late 19th century, that it has eliminated from the table humanity's greatest, single greatest fear, single greatest anxiety throughout 99.9% .9 of our history. And that is the fear of what we will experience after death. To put it in Christian language, am I going to go to heaven or am I going to go to hell? Materialism has gotten rid of that in one fell swoop. It has gotten rid of the biggest fear of humanity. Now you do not need to worry about what happens after death. You may worry about the process of dying, which can be very painful, but it comes to an end and then you're not there anymore. There is no one there to experience anything. There's no reason to be afraid of anything because you aren't going to be there to be afraid. All of your problems will perforce come to an end at some point in the not far distant future, whether you like it or not, whether you do anything about it or not. That fear returns because now if, under analytic idealism, your core subjectivity has nowhere to go. Everything, else, everything happens in it. It cannot come to an end or to a beginning because all beginnings and ends happen within it. Your state of mind is going to change. You're not going to be a, an individualized cluster of mental processes anymore. Um, and the corresponding change in appearance is your body rots. <laughs> it, start, it stops metabolizing and begins to rot. Well, that's a big change in appearance, which ought to correspond to a big change in mental state in the configuration of consciousness that will change. But again, it's a configuration of consciousness that change, not consciousness coming to an end. And the, the question becomes valid again. What am I going to experience when my configuration of consciousness changes dramatically? That's the bad news. The good news is you're never going to be annihilated. Your core subjectivity is around for the long haul which for some, including for myself, is also bad news. I call it the vertigo of eternity. It's a very scary thing to really understand and internalize that your core subjectivity cannot go anywhere. It cannot disappear, even if you kill yourself. I'm not sure this is good news for me, but it's good news for a whole lot of people. The other good news is meaning returns. Now, even if you suffer a lot and you think your life has been, is pointless, you will have learned something from all that suffering, from all that pointlessness. You will have come up with certain thoughts, certain interpretations, certain insights. And under materialism, those insights would disappear. And therefore, all of that pain and suffering was for nothing. Under analytic idealism, uh, when you die, your configuration of mind comes, it goes from a localized state to an open state, or in technical terms, it goes from a dissociated state to a non-dissociated state, which means that the insights you have accumulated during life are now dispersed in a much broader cognitive context. In other words, they become the insights of nature and you have been the carrier of those insights. Thanks to you, nature now has those insights after you die. So your life is meaningful. The world is meaningful because now the physical world is an appearance. It's not the thing in itself. It's what the thing in itself looks like. In other words, it's a symbol. It's a book to be deciphered. 
it regains that extra dimension of depth and profundity and meaning. There is something mysterious on the other side of the world from you, in the same sense that there is a storm, a sky, clouds, wind behind um, the dashboard of dials on an airplane. The thing that's measured and represented on the dashboard uh, is the mystery, is, that, is what is behind the dashboard. The physical world is our dashboard. What is behind it? Now imagine that you were born in a windowless airplane cockpit. All you had was the dashboard throughout your life. And when you die for the first time, you see the sky, you see the storm, the sun, the moon, the stars, the clouds. And you realize that all of that indeed was represented on the dashboard. But you experience them in a completely different way. In a completely, you experience them with an extra dimension of meaning and significance. And that's the invitation. The invitation that my dealers makes to all of us is that the world we see, even if it feels terrible or feels amazing, it's just like a dashboard. It's very flat, compressed, encoded. It doesn't begin to convey the profundity, uh, the richness, the depth of the mystery that is right on the other side of it from us, that is surrounding us at all times. So it, it brings back to life that dimension of mystery and meaning. Yeah, that, that's so important. And I, you've talked um, about your experience being a sort of secular materialist um, and, and, and I, I resonated very much with that in an earlier part of my life, um, you know, uh, 10, 15 years of, of feeling this kind of distress of the pointlessness and meaninglessness of this materialist's um, secular modern worldview. Um, and um, I think just mystery re-entering the stage again is extremely therapeutic it's it's terrifying but also therapeutic because there's this kind of haughtiness that comes with the the kind of materialist view that there is no mystery that there's no ultimately no mystery you know given enough time and enough experiments humans will be able to explain everything and we're probably pretty close to it anyway and you know there's that kind of feeling of, of and a dissatisfaction with what we what we've found out so far. But I think one of the things I wanted to say with the, um, you know, the, the 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 fear of the infinity of consciousness that um, this core subjectivity aspect of who we are is always at ease um, with any experience we're having, no matter how terrifying. It's it's so hard to get out of this thing. So of of saying you've got. Um, a perceiver and then what you're perceiving that that you've got you've got mind and then phenomena and they seem separate from each other and and what i'm my understanding of what you're saying is that there is no separation between the two that the qualia of our experience are consciousness i'll say something i'm not sure it's what you're it's in the in the direction you're trying to to get me i'll say something that i think is in some sense related to what you said that mind through self-excitation can create seemingly objective experiences is self-evident it's evident to all of us we dream 
and we dream, we seem to be in an objective world, and yet all of those dreamed up experiences uh, are not being modulated by something outside. Um, they are just excitations of our own mind. So when mind is excited, it does not require anything outside mind to create the experience of a seeming world in which we are immersed. We all know that from first person experience. Having said that, if this is a dream, it is very peculiar that we are all having mutually consistent dreams. If you were sitting next to me in my study right now, you would describe an environment uh, that is very consistent with how I would describe it. So we seem to be immersed in, in some sense, the same dream and experiencing the same dream from different perspectives. And I think that is important data that cannot be neglected um, or, 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 or ignored. Uh, there seems to be, well, I would even go as far as to say there obviously is a shared external context to our individual minds. I would say that external con context is itself mental, but it's not my mind. It's not your mind alone. It's not only the sum total of all minds of all uh, living beings. Uh, it is a mind at large. It is a transpersonal form of mentation that underlies nature at, at its most basic ontic level. Um, so what are we? If the core subjectivity of our minds are the same, if my core subjectivity is the same as the core subjectivity in you and the core subjectivity of nature at large, then why does it seem like uh, there is a world of beyond our own minds? Even if that world is mental, it's beyond our minds and we all seem to be inhabiting it. How does that happen? If it's all only one core subjectivity, all one mind, how come I don't know your thoughts right now? How, how come I don't know what's happening in the galaxy of Andromeda? How come I forget things? How come I can't get into the mind of Putin and stop him from being this barbaric criminal that he turned out to be? Um, we have to account for that. And I think the most explanatorily powerful, empirically grounded and, and reasonable way to account for this uh, is uh, based on uh, a phenomenon that is well known in psychiatry. It's called dissociation. Um, a person suffering from what used to be called multiple personality disorder, today it's called dissociative identity disorder or DID, um, that person experiences uh, their own otherwise unitary mind as a collection of seemingly independent uh, 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 centers of awareness, which is technically called um, an alter. An alter is a dissociated segment uh, of, of what is in fact one mind or the multiple personalities, so to say. Technically, they are called alters. And research in the 21st century, uh, since the advent of neuroimaging, has shown that dissociative processes look like something under a brain scanner. In other words, alters have an appearance. There is something it looks like when you observe an alter from the outside. You can even diagnose people with DID, not based on clinical. Uh, um, reports from the patient, but on objective neuroimaging. My hypothesis is that in the mind of nature, something like that happens. Uh, the mind of nature dissociates at a universal level and forms alters. And because those alters are dissociated from one another and from mind at large, we don't know what's happening in each other's minds. 
we don't know what's happening in the galaxy of Andromeda because we are dissociated. We are alters of the universe. And what do those alters look like? Because we know that in the mind of a person, alters look like something. Well, in the mind of the universe, alters look like biology, metabolizing living entities, life. Life is the same as a dissociative process in the mind of nature. From a first person perspective, it feels like us, our inner life. From a second person perspective, it looks like a metabolizing biological body with brain activity, patterns of brain activity that correlate with inner experience. Why do they correlate? Because they are what inner experience looks like from across a dissociative boundary. The image of a phenomenon correlates with the phenomenon, of course. Uh, and that's why brain activity correlates with the experience. So the material world is just what the mind of nature looks like from across our dissociative boundary. It's the dissociative boundary that creates the dashboard. From that perspective, dissociation is a configuration of mind. And, and there can be you know, a whole spectrum of dissociation. Dissociation is not binary. You're either dissociated or you're not. You can have many degrees of dissociation. And those degrees can change in the course of life. You drink alcohol, your dissociative state, state changes. You get a high dose of 5-MeO-DMT. Well, your dissociative state will change a lot. You're, you're basically making the dissociative boundary a lot more porous, permeable, less efficient in insulating cognitive contents uh, from across it itself. So it is possible that all these different states of consciousness that uh, talked about in the spiritual traditions of the world uh, um, are basically mythological language to talk about the different uh, dissociative configurations of mind that can uh, occur in the form of life, in the form that we call uh, life. Uh, and that ultimately, if you end the dissociation for good, we have a name for that, it's called dying. Uh, if you end the dissociation for good, instead of observing the world from across your own dissociative boundary, you know, ha having the dashboard, you become the world. The pilot leaves the airplane and becomes the storm outside, becomes the sky outside, and you experience the world from a first-person perspective. And in between these two extremes, observing and being, there probably are all possible gradations in between. Uh, which are correlated with what people call near-death experiences, psychedelic trances, anoxia, lack of oxygen to the brain, all kinds of things. Yes, it's, it's a really ingenious hypothesis that, and I and I love it. And it reminds me of the the, the Hindu myth of um, Leela that um, God, you know, lo uh, loses him herself on purpose in uh, becoming all of these different people living all of these different uh, lives just for the play the, the the kind of the thrill of it uh, th this massive dissociation into billions of sentient creatures and then dying coming back i'm not sure any of it is on purpose by the way oh okay yeah yeah sure yeah 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 to take to, to to make that clear yeah and um i mean that's that's uh, there's probably many different interpretations of that myth, which have all the sort of different shades of intention and lack of intention. Um, and you have talked in another interview you did um, that about someone with multiple personality disorder or DID, as it's now called, um, dreaming 
with all of their alters in their dream as individual characters which is really fascinating uh, that even a you know, person's individual consciousness can have, can split off into all these different alters. I mean, in a way, I suppose, even in a normal dream, there's lots of different characters in there, which are kind of dissociations of your own um, consciousness, perhaps. Um, yeah. This well, I, and well, the other thing I want to say is uh, there's a, when people talk about reincarnation, it's something I've heard you address. Um, and I, I believe it, it was Shankara, um, who was sort of uh, you know, very important Indian sage who's uh, from a long time ago. Um, he, when, when asked about it, he said uh, that there's only the, that God is the only transmigrant in, there's only one being 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 born and dying and reborn and all of that sort of thing so there's not actually individuals hap that's happening too um but it is really yeah you know, i think that the reports of the children children's reports of reincarnation are particularly interesting because they don't have all of the um uh you know the baggage that, that adults do um i think you you've said something interesting about reincarnation that um you know it's not if there is only one mind, it's not that surprising that people would remember other lives, you know, given that kind of interconnectedness of it all. Um, which I, I thought was a, was a really good point. If, if life is what a dissociative process in the universal mind looks like, then death is what the end of that dissociation looks like. And if dissociation ends, um, cognitive contents from both sides of the former dissociative boundary intermingle. So the con your memories uh, intermingle uh, with the rest of the cognitive contents of the mind of nature. And then if another dissociative process arises in the form of nature, it's entirely conceivable that some of what was a dead person's memories get captured within the newly forming dissociative boundary of a, you know, a new altar, which we call a new life, and therefore is remembered by that new life. I don't think that is... Uh, inconceivable or plausibility is more difficult but it, it is coherent to to bring up that possibility and yes that could account for some of the reports of reincarnation well there's um just one thing i wanted to you know cover before we we finish was um the some of the experimental evidence in physics supporting this um i mean it, I am I am a total layman when it comes to physics, so uh, I w there's probably loads that would go right over my head. Um, but you know that's a question that uh, you know people want to want to know is you know we're talking all of this stuff that sound that sounds like it comes out of the Eastern mysticism and and that kind of thing. Um, and I know there were books like the Tao of Physics by Fritjof Capra that came out a long time ago. Um, but what 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 are the kind of the the best pieces of experimental evidence in in physics that you've seen that that support this view? Okay, for, first let's keep in mind that in the popular culture, these experiments and the results uh, from from foundations of physics have been egregiously mischaracterized and and misused and misrepresented. Somebody was showing me the other day 
some YouTube video by some cartoon character, some Dr. Quantum something. And, and then at some point, Dr. Dr. Quantum says, the electrons know whether they are being observed or not. That is utter and complete nonsense. That's not at all what the experiments show. That's just sensationalist BS. Um, having said that, uh, what the experiments do show is impossible to reconcile with a physicalist intuition, with the intuition that the world is made of physical stuff. Why? Because of the following. Let, let me very briefly describe what the experiment is. Um, you create two elementary subatomic particles, like photons, particles of light. You create them together, so they are tec technically entangled. They are born together. Then you shoot one in one direction and you shoot the other in the opposite direction at very nearly the speed of light or the speed of light if you're using photons. And after they covered a certain distance and they are far away from one another, you make a measurement on one and a measurement on the other at the same time. So you have two scientists, say Alice and Bob. Alice makes a measurement on photon A and Bob makes a measurement on photon B at the same time, but far away from one another in such a way that they cannot communicate to one another. They are too far away, things happening too fast. There is no time for a signal to be carried from the two sides because the signal has to go maximum at the speed of light itself. And suppose further that uh, Alice and Bob can make a choice about what they measure. Technically it's angular momentum that's usually measured, but I don't wanna get into that, otherwise it would take forever. They can choose what property to measure on particles A and B. Now, imagine further that they only make this choice after the particles are already in flight. So they cannot communicate to one another because the choice is only made after the particles are already on the way. There is no time for a signal to be transmitted between Alice and Bob uh, after they make the choice. It turns out that Alice's choice of what to measure about particle A determines what Bob sees when he measures particle B. In other words, what particle B is depends on how you look at particle A. Now, why does that violate physicalist intuitions? Because physicalism presupposes that the physical properties of the particles are whatever they are, irrespective of whether, how, and if you make a measurement. A, measure, a measurement simply discloses the physical properties that were already there immediately prior to measurement. But if the properties of particle B depends on how you measure particle A, then the properties of part particle B cannot have been there all along. They are somehow the product of what you do measure about particle A. Now, physical entities are defined in terms of their physical properties. So if their physical properties are not there before you measure, they are only there as a result of measurement, then there are no physical entities prior to measurement because physical entities are their properties. And then people get discombobulated because they are used to thinking of the world out there as physical. But if physicality only arises when you decide to make a measurement and you actually perform the measurement, then what the hell is it that you're measuring? What was there 
that you then go and measure prior to the measurement. It cannot be physical because we now know that physicality can only be spoken of after you've made the measurement. And then the science press comes out and says, well, physics has uh, refuted reality, which is absolute nonsense. Of course, it doesn't refute reality. Of course, there is something being measured out there. For us to speak of measurement creating phys physical properties, something had to be measured. <laughs> Otherwise, you cannot speak of measurement. So now, this, this idea that quantum physics has denied the objective world is, is a total materialist, nonsensical <laughs> approach to what's happening. What the experiments are showing is that the thing that is measured is not physical. Physicality is the appearance upon measurement of that non-physical thing. Now, go back to the dashboard metaphor. If the airplane's sensors don't measure the sky outside, airspeed, air humidity, temperature, radars, measuring air pressure variations, if you don't make those measurements, the dials on the dashboard show nothing. What the dials show is the outcome of measurement. If you don't measure, there is nothing on the dashboard. Does that mean that if you don't measure, there is no sky outside? Of course not. The sky is there, whether you're measuring or not. But the dashboard will only show something if you do make a measurement. That's what the physical world is. It's the bloody dashboard. You cannot speak of physicality until you make a measurement for the same reason that the dashboard shows nothing unless the sensors make a measurement. But the fact that there is no dashboard indications or that there is no physicality if you don't make a measurement doesn't mean that there is nothing that can be measured out there. Doesn't mean that there isn't a sky outside. It just means that it's not being measured. So you don't see the dash what the dashboard shows. The dashboard shows nothing. Or going back to reality, there is no physical world if you don't measure, because the physical world is the indications on the dashboard. If you don't measure, there is no physical world. Of course not. But the actual world outside is there, amenable to being measured anytime you want. And if you do measure it, you get physicality. In the same sense that if the airplane sensors do measure the sky, the dials show something. That's all there is to it. And to circumvent this obvious, very natural, reasonable, eminently reasonable conclusion, people come up with all kinds of absurdly implausible stories. Sean Carroll, famous physicist, he has concluded that uh, there are countless physical universes popping up for no reason, out of nothing, into existence, every infinitesimal fraction of a second uh, for which we have precisely zero empirical evidence. He thinks that's a more plausible explanation for these experiments than to just accept the obvious. The world as it is in itself is not physical. Physicality is, is an appearance thereof upon measurement. Uh, and there are other people like Sabine Holsenfelder who want to uh, um, throw away a basic understanding of what observation means in an absurd theory called superdeterminism based on hidden variables. So she imagines that there are these hidden properties of nature for which we have absolutely zero evidence that work in such a way that the outcome 
of measurement depends on the settings of the measurement apparatus. Let me make a metaphor to try to, to help you understand this. The theory is equivalent to saying the following. If you make a photograph of the moon and you set the, the settings of your camera, the measurement instrument, like aperture, exposure time, what she's saying is that what the moon is depends on the settings of your camera. So if you change the aperture and exposure time of your camera, the moon will be something different. So this is the kind of absurd fantasy for which there is zero evidence that people come up with to avoid the conclusion that is obvious from experimentation that the world as it actually is, isn't physical. Physicality is just an appearance. Eventually, we will of course accept the obvious. We will, of course, accept the evidence for what the evidence is obviously telling us. Uh, but culture has a lot of momentum. Bullshit narratives have so much momentum that it may take a generation or two for us to accept this. But in this century, it will be accepted because it's just too in our faces to be denied for too long, to be replaced by these absurd alternative narratives. Um, yeah, Ajashanti's got a good saying that wake, waking up is like um, being an alcoholic getting sober, but you have to live the rest of your life in a bar. Um, so, it's, you know, it's, waking up. It's a, from, good, it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, waking up from materialism's kind of like that because the, there's just this incessant social conditioning um, reinforcing the materialist view. Well, um, I wish we had more time because uh, the. I feel like uh, um, there's a, a whistle-stop tour uh, of it, and I just one thing I want to I want to get down on just for those listening, and I, not not that we need to explore this because I know you haven't got time, but people can look up your other talks that, um, and this relates to the view that that consciousness is um, created by the brain, and that the richness of our experiences is a result of of the of you know the activity and fireworks inside our our brains that. Um, when people in only found this out in about 2012 and people were taking different psychedelics going into fMRI scanners um we were expecting that their brains would be you know look like some incredible fireworks display but actually their brains showed far uh, a very very diminished um level of activity compared to normal waking state um and that was a surprise result for people um that when your brain is less active you can have these super rich experiences which which is what is a counterintuitive thing but it's again a, a piece of evidence um against the kind of you know brain creating consciousness and um but i just wanted to put that there as a, as a footnote for people to to look up because it's a very very interesting data point yeah well uh, thank you so much incredibly generous bernardo um and i i, I really admire your um uh energy for putting this uh this uh, view out there you know you you're you're, put, you're creating an enormous amount of content um out there on, on the internet and i hope it's there for generations to come for people to to um gorge on because it's it's great stuff and thank you so much thanks thanks for having me i made all the music that i use in my podcasts if you'd like to hear more of my music please visit SoundCloud and check out my profile, Ralph Cree.